0: You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Hey everyone, happy Friday and welcome to NAM 36. It is so, so nice to see you all in person and that things are finally moving forward so it looks like 2021 is the year. Um, so let me first start by doing the acknowledgement to country. Um, we acknowledge the Bonarong Wurrung and Wurundjeri Woyurong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders past, present and future. Historically, the city of Melbourne has been an important meeting space for the people of the Kulin Nation, and we would like to state our purpose for hosting this event on, our, on this sacred land, and we'd also like to extend this invitation to our speakers as well as our audience to so for them to acknowledge what it means for them to be on this land and also what their purpose is today. Okay. Moving on, I'd like to do a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Hames Paints. Um, They are a great supporter for us as well as this industry during a very trying time. They are so eager and kind to always help you out if you need anything. So if you're looking for some paint specifications or if you're just looking for some paint, please be sure to give them a call. They are amazing. Um, Also, another shout out to our invite designer, Grace McKellar. She is the person behind most of NAMS invites, and also this invite. It's beautiful. So thank you, Grace. Thank you for always designing amazing invite. It looks awesome, as always. And we can't wait to see more of the future designs that you put up for us. I'd also like to introduce our superstar NAM team starting with myself, Akila Ravi, then we have Dan Moore at the back, Nikita Bokti, Daria Laikina, Merint Yanni, um, Kirsten Fokos, Anna Nguyen, Kataiba al William Tran, and finally, Nick Arthur. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for all the amazing work that you do and for constantly supporting and pulling up this event together and for having each other's back. We couldn't have done this without you, so thank you. Um, and for all the new NAM attendees over here who are attending a NAM event for the very first time. First of all, welcome to NAM. Um, we are New Architects Melbourne, so we are a volunteer based group and also a platform that is trying to support new and emerging architects across Melbourne and Victoria. So it was first started by the amazing Eugenia Tan in 2011 when she was working with Breathe Architecture at that time. And how it started off was that um, we invited architects and designers to present their work, their stories, and their design sensibilities in front of their peers and design enthusiasts um, in a very casual environment. And ever since then, we've had some great creative professionals coming in and sharing their incredible work. And that's been our journey so far. Um, We are here today for the launch of the homemade exhibition and what the homemade exhibition talks about is housing innovation across Australia and how Melbourne particularly plays a role in um, housing innovation and community-centered housing models that are both affordable, sustainable, and also have a lot of value attached to it. And it is the way forward as to how optimistic and inclusive these housing models are and how they shape the future of our cities and urban centers. So, um, the way NAM events usually work is that we have architects and designers presenting to a crowd of people. And this time, NAM is going to be a little bit different because we have the residents of these amazing housing models sharing their lived experiences and stories with us about these housing models. And um, so thank you to NGV Melbourne, Never Too Small, for helping put together this homemade exhibition, which is wonderful. And I'm now passing on the mic to Audrey, who is going to begin moderating this session. Audrey is an urban designer from MGS Architects and also a part of the homemade exhibition team. So thank you, Audrey, and stay tuned. Thanks, Akila,
2: and thanks to New Architects Melbourne and M-Pavilion for your support in enabling this important conversation to take place. So the format of our discussion tonight is for a panel, followed by a Q&A led by Akila, And after the panel discussion, we will be launching the homemade exhibition. So feel free to stick in, grab some drinks, and chat with um, the residents, exhibition organizers, and other guests. So before we begin... Um, It's important that we understand the premise as to why we are having this conversation tonight. The past few years' um, conversation about innovative housing models here in M Pavilion or any other platform has mainly revolved around the ways they are delivered, The the design, finance, and governance of how the ways these projects are designed and made possible. So we heard from the architects, the developers, and the champions of these buildings. This time around, we're looking in a di- very different perspective on what we can learn from the residents and communities who are making this project's home. This evening's panel, we will hear from the residents of Property Collective, Nightingale 1 and 2, Murundu- Murundaka Co-Housing, and Assemble Rose one in- at 152 Rose Street. And the aim of this panel discussion is to reveal what happens when design intention encounters the complex realities of everyday life. What's the day-to-day living in this housing? How do the communities ensure responsibilities are shared and conflicts are resolved? And how do each resident make this their home? So, on to the conversation. Good evening, panelists. Um, I hope you're all feeling comfortable with your seats and... Think of this as a regular Friday evening conversation over dinner. Um, So we want to give everyone a chance to to have time to speak in this panel, so make sure to make your answers as succinct as possible. But at the same time, feel free to ask each other questions because I guess this is the time for you to really get to know each other's model and to share. So as I introduce each one of you, it would be great if you could tell a little bit about yourself and briefly describe in one to two sentences the housing model you are in. Um, Let's start with you, Eng.
3: Okay, Um, I'm Eng. the housing model that I'm living in is a, a building group model where like-minded friends, family come together to build homes for themselves, together.
2: Thank you, Anne. Eh? Um, Kate, you can quickly introduce um, Nightingale for both of you and Jen.
4: Hi, I'm Kate. I live at Nightingale One. Um, They're homes that are built um, with zero profit in mind and social, environmental and financial sustainability at the core. Would you say anything more? Um,
5: Is that...? Oh, yeah. Uh, So I'm at Nightingale 2, which is at Fairfield Station as opposed to Brunswick. Um, But, yeah. Hi, everyone.
6: I'm Lisa, and I live in Murundaka Co-Housing, which is a um, development that's about 11 years old now, and it's a rental model, and it's um, also a rental cooperative, but we'll talk more about that as we go on, no doubt. (coughs)
0: Hi everyone. My name's Carolyn. I live here, not in this room, but next to it actually, um, in Roseneath Street in, in Clifton Hill. It's an Assemble project, the first of uh, the Assemble projects. It's a traditional development, but it was co-created by the community in the lead up to the sale day. So. It's traditional, but most people bought into it for the community aspect and the new projects that Assemble are developing are very much around rent to buy model, so a little bit different to the one that we live in at Rosemeath Street.
2: Yeah, thank you for that, um, Carolyn. So l- let me start with the first question with you. So why did you f- move in and decide to um,
0: choose Assem- Assemble model? Well, I first had a taste of the small life um, in 2010. My son Billy and I went to live in France for six months and we'd downsized, sold a big home and when we went to France, lived in an apartment about the same size as I live in now and I vowed and declared that when I went back, lived, moved back to Melbourne that I would live in a small home And lo and behold, I didn't. I bought a big townhouse and got all the mass accumulation, you know, all the stuff that we do. And then um, I ended up realising that where I was living didn't have community. It was very much... um, I felt my footprint was way too big and I didn't want to have any, you know, so much debt. So I just decided to sell up and then... I was staying with my friend Anne in Abbotsford and I was walking under the railway underpass near Dr Morse, if everyone, anyone knows that, on Johnston Street, and I saw a poster for the Assemble project and it was like hand-drawn caricatures of people and pets and green spaces and I've never seen an apartment advertised like that before and I just saw this poster and I stopped dead still and I said, that is where I'm going to live and it um, It happened. <laughs> Thank you for that,
2: Carolyn. I remember, um, Lisa, you had a very interesting story of what brought you to living in a sustainable housing model. Could you like to share that yes. to us? Yes,
6: a, um, a bit rambly, but I'll try and keep it on track. But um, I was doing some um, volunteer work for Conservation um, Volunteer Australia. I think, well, Conservation... Anyway... That, and you go out on site and you do um, good works in parks and things like that. And I was on Kangaroo Island and I was working on a conservation project there and the people who ran the project had some really interesting ideas about um, how we live and we didn't need to have permanent buildings and we could have much smaller footprints and we could share the land and that got me thinking about, well, I'd like a bit of that and a bit more community back in Melbourne. So they sent me off to Christie Walk in Adelaide, which is a a build in the centre of Adelaide which uses a lot of social and environmental aspects to the build. And I went, I'm sold on this model, but came home and thought, where is it happening in Melbourne? And I joined a local group called Urban Coop, which was a build um, and design to buy group. And I quickly realised I probably wouldn't have the cash for that. Um, and then this other model came along, which was a rental model, also based in the suburbs. And I signed up to join up for that, and and luckily was selected to go and live there because it there was a few hurdles to coming into this model, which are to do with eligibility because it is a government-funded program.
2: Yeah. Thanks for that, um, Lisa. Because Murundaka is one of the like one of the few older. Cooperative housing projects that we know of at the moment for being there for the, the past decade or so. Now I'm really curious to hear about also. I think Eng, um the housing model you are in in Pro- property collective started around 2011. Could you tell us as to why you decided to move in in the property collective? Okay,
3: um, I was going to downsize. I've got a was living in a quarter acre house. And all the children have moved out, so I felt that it's time for me to downsize. And then my son, uh, Tim, who started the property collectives, came with his friend, proposed to me that they are thinking that uh, three of the friends would like to start building homes together. And I knew two of his friends because they were high school friends and they used to come visit my place. So I thought, well, why not? And so I um, was interested in the idea and I wanted to support my son in his first project. And so it was, that's where I went in and very happy with it. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Eng. Um, and if you are also aware the, the Property Collective is part of the exhibition along with Nightingale and assemble model. Um, now we'd like to hear from Nightingale 1 and 2. Um, Kate would you like to share how you uh, why did you decide to move into Nightingale because from our conversation before you were living at the Commons and you after six months of living there you decided to move into Nightingale 1.
4: Um, sure, I, uh, my partner and I started renting at the Commons purely based on the way that it looked. Um, we didn't know anything about it. And after about six months, it was open as part of Open House Melbourne. And we went on a tour with the architect who also happened to live there, who we didn't even realise created the building. Um, And I went on one of the tours and came home and I said to Jace, I'm like, you've got to go on a tour. This building is amazing. (laughs) Like, it's got all these features. Um, (laughs) um, And it sort of just encouraged us to live much more sustainably without even really trying or realising what we were doing. And so we were renting and when we found out that Nightingale 1 was going to happen across the road, we jumped at the chance to move there and were lucky enough to um, secure one in the ballot. (laughs) And you
2: also mentioned that um, prior to moving to Nightingale, home ownership seems impossible for for you and your partner. Could you tell us why?
4: Uh, Just really expensive. (laughs) Um, And... We sort of thought if we were ever to own anything it would have to be really far away and we both don't know how to drive so that wasn't really going to work out. Um, And then Nightingale were offering 5% deposits to secure a place and that was what got us over the line so we spent a lot of time saving like crazy and really only just made it with a 5% deposit so that's what made it available to us. That really
2: is um, good to hear because a lot of us here um, find it really hard to get uh, our own housing at the moment and we're all living in a rental model, typically, of course, market housing. Um, And it's with market housing, we always find it also to get that sustainability achievements that we want to if we want to live sustainably. And I guess... um, Jen, you went sharing your experience of why, what was your motivation? Because your career itself is in line with sustainability, and I assume this has influenced you in deciding to move to Nightingale
5: too? Yeah. Um, so in the early 90s, I was studying environmental science, and one of our field trips was to Mura which is a co op um, in a rural area. So I first heard about um, co-op housing then. Then it was a matter of when was the right time. I looked at Murundaka, but I had too much money, um, so I didn't fit the eligibility criteria. Um, urban Coop wasn't happening yet. Uh, so I just kept keeping an eye out. I was on the Nightingale list, but I wasn't really paying much attention to it because by that time I was chose to not work full-time and I couldn't get a mortgage even if I wanted one. And then I got a full-time job and I went... <gasps> I can buy one now. And a friend of mine who was studying architecture said, oh, they're going to build one on that block next to the railway line. And I kept going to the station and going, where? Like, where? I don't see where you could possibly build an apartment building. And then I went, no. And while they were building, I was still going there and going, not really. Like, but anyway, that's, that's how it happened.
2: So, um... How was your uh, living before compared to moving to Nightingale? Like, how is the day-to-day living experience in Nightingale now?
5: Um, For me, I've been on a journey for a very long time. Um, I used to live in um, a bedsit in Canberra when I was doing my PhD, and I lived in East Timor in very subsistent kind of conditions. So, um, I've been... Going on a journey of less consumption for quite some time, and really thinking about the impact of um, my life on the earth. Um, but you know, I've I have my peaks and troughs. Um, sometimes I will live very um, subsistently, and then I go, I just can't. to buy another thing from Savers. I want something fresh. Um, So, yeah. Um, My... I think my general life today is much more local. I think we are so lucky because Fairfield is just so awesome. We've just got a bulk shop. We're getting a fishmonger. I don't have to go anywhere. And I definitely don't have to go to a supermarket, so that's just the best thing ever.
2: That's really nice to hear. I wonder if other residents feel also the same with their day-to-day living. Do you also feel local,
0: um, everything is accessible? Does anyone want to share about this one? Um, yeah, day-to-day life is very different living where I live now compared to where I did. Um, you know, it's going to, I'm going to sound like a wanker, but, um, you know, my day starts with getting up and going downstairs right beneath me. There was a picture of a cafe before. You might have seen it. So I start with an oat milk latte. I know that sounds really wankish. Um, but a typical day will, look, will um, be me looking after two dogs in my neighbourhood. My friend Donna, who lives across the way. And then my other friend, Deb, who's, who's um, dog, she's got her dog around the corner because I work from home. So I spend a lot of time on Zoom and being in this community has saved me from going mental during COVID, I can tell you. So um, the day-to-day life is very much about, um, you will always meet people in the public space. So we've got a workshop at Um, 122, we've also got the cafe downstairs, we've got a community room um, as well, and um, open public spaces around the building. So you can't walk out of your house without knowing somebody and having conversations. So... Um, that's where the community is built through the incidental conversations that you have with people. We've started things like an egg-buying co-op. We've just got a grant with uh, Yarra Council to do a waste audit. That's, um, many of us has, have a personal mission to eliminate uh, waste problems because any development, even if it's built with sustainability in mind, um, not always does everyone have the same mindset. So it's a constant education process. So we have lots of different projects and different things going on. We've just got street planner boxes. So day-to-day life is filled with incidental interactions between people and the community is kind of cultivated through that. Um, last night went down to the restaurant with my son Billy and in walks a whole lot of other residents and we all end up talking to each other and oohing and ahhing over each other's... Um, kids and stuff, so, yeah, it's a very,
1: very um, fluid um, day-to-day life. Um, Carolyn, would you also like to talk to the audience about the Renewable Energy Initiative that you're taking in Rosneath Street?
0: Yeah, we... Our property was built on a a grid um, uh, scene, it was, and we kind of... um, not everyone was on renewable energy, even though the common areas of our development are renewed by uh, solar panels and so on. Individual apartments weren't actually um, on renewable energy. So a small group of us decided to um, knock on everybody's door and ask ask them if they were actually on renewable energy. And we got little stickers and we put them on all the, all the post boxes when anyone signed up so we could kind of shame those that weren't on renewable energy into getting it. Um, yeah, so, so that's just one example of a project where people small groups gather to drive specific initiatives.
2: Now, actually, speaking of um, incidental interactions with the residents, I'm really curious to hear from Murundaka, who, has, who is actually um, an incidental community. So could you describe to us how was the day-to-day living in your housing?
6: Yeah, so I've been sitting here pondering that, and I thought I might do a quick... Um, summary of the activities in the last week. Of course it was a bit more difficult um, during lockdown but because our property is quite open and you'll see some pictures coming up and it's got nice spaces in the garden, the garden's quite mature and there's lots of little nooks and crannies and um, spaces that people can meet informally or formally. So on um, this weekend we had our first shared common meal for for a year um, in our because we have a room that has lounge, kitchen, um, kids' corner, and we have another space upstairs, which is another separate space, and it's all in the one building in the middle of the site. Um, So we had a common meal, and then we had a workshop, because some people are doing some um, communication about non-violent methods of doing things, then we had a clothes swap and I got some blue suede shoes, which I really love. And then we had um, some, a couple of us hit significant birthdays, so we had a birthday cake. Um, then we've had lots of activity on site, people fixing up various projects. There's always a garden project going on. Um, another one, one of the young people's been employed to do some oil oiling of the decking um, to finish that off because we do that as a group project but now people have come back out of, um, they're a bit busier. We thought it would be politic to maybe encourage um, some workforce participation by employing a young person to finish that off. Um, So this weekend we'll probably have a whole bunch of other activities. There's always something going on. We have a lot of people come in and use our space from the outside, the local community as well. There's always people coming on. We're quite active in the local networks, the swap groups, the share groups, the take them a dinner group. You know, there's all sorts of those things going on all the time too. So it feels like we're really well held in that local community.
2: Yeah. It's really um, lovely to hear uh, because you've built this committee over the past 10 years and even if there's people moving out, there's still those people who've been there from the start that keeps the um, family together in that sense. Uh, now I actually would like to hear from Eng because you are coming from a really sm- a much smaller group than all the other models here being with, I think, six to seven people. Correct me if I'm wrong. Could you tell us your
3: experience living with um, your neighbors, um, well, in in our model, we do live independently, but at the same time, um, you can call upon your neighbor. You, you know that you're not alone or isolated because you have neighbors um, that you can call upon if you need assistance. Um, the name the, um, the other residents. Are young families, so and um, their interests might be a bit different because they are more family uh, oriented. Um, have their their own life, but you, you are able to interact with them if you need to. But you at the same time you have your own space. And,
1: yeah.
3: and
2: for how long have you been living in this um, model of property collective?
3: Um, in the first project in Saint George's Road, been there for six, seven years. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it was since uh, two thousand fourteen, mm-hmm. and um, but I moved with him and his family to his second project, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So our um, yeah. So it's a three-generation so- living in his second project.
2: So how has um, this changed over time? Were you still living with the same people before in the first model before you moved into the second housing one?
3: Um, no, there have been changes as um, their lives um, their life changes and their demands uh, have changed. Uh, a few of them have sold and moved out. But the new tenants or new owners that have bought into the units they have have the same they are like minded like us, and they um, have the same values and oh, and we established a good relationship and friendship um, with them, yeah and they like the model and the buildings yeah
2: and I'm really curious because um you said that a lot of them have already sold out. I wonder if the case for Nightingale, it's very different having your own, um, what do you call it again, the, con- the covenant that you cannot sell unless you are part of the, the group already. So I'm curious now, um, Kate and Jen, if you could, one of you could share about this and how has your community
4: changed over time? Um, Yeah, so we signed a covenant that we can't... You can sell it, but you can't sell it for um, astronomical prices. It has to be equal to whatever the value of the suburb has gone up in. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And it also has to be offered to the Nightingale registered list before you can sell it on the open market. So
2: do you think um, having this covenant also... um, enabled for people to be with the same group of community that they started with and not at the same time allow um, some people to have a sense of like community that stays there for them for a long time. So I'm really curious now with your experience and um, Chen. I think you could share something because Nightingale 2 just started a few years ago or like last year, if I'm not mistaken.
5: Sorry, what did you want to ask? Yeah, so I
2: would like to hear, like, do you think um, at the moment it's still the same community that is running through here? And um, how, how do you think it changed the past few years or it's still the same? And what were the challenges that you think are you facing as a community?
5: Wow, how long have you got? <laughs> um, first of all, I just want to acknowledge my menopause brain. And I was using the wrong word before. I didn't mean subsistence. Did anyone pick that up?
6: No, no. Thank no you. Did.
5: What's the word I meant? Anyway. Sustainable. No, it wasn't necessarily sustainable. It was like conservative. Less consumption. But, yeah, I suppose you could call it sustainable. But I didn't mean sustainable. Anyway, whatever. Um, give me a nap. Um, what was the question? <laughs> no, I'm mean, just really curious, like, how much has it changed oh, yeah. since you moved in? Um, so, even though we've only been around for 18 months, we've actually already had two changes. Um, a couple decided that they needed... Well, they both actually decided that they wanted something bigger. I think, I think one of them bought... And then she got into a relationship, and so they both moved in, and they just went, it's way too small, because they had, a, like, a, a one-bedroom. Um, and so they decided to move out. Um, and, yeah, I think it was the same... Um, for the other one yeah so one rented and one sold so there has been a little bit of a shift already yeah in terms of um I know that um someone from Nightingale 1 has moved out I mean you you moved from Commons to Nightingale 1 and I've got another friend who is moving from Nightingale 1 to Nightingale Anstey so I think there is a bit of continuity from Nightingale to Nightingale I'm done I'm just going to stay here I'm happy thanks (laughs) It's really good to hear, because now um,
2: with Nightingale, like what you said, Nightingale 2 is just there for like the past 18 months, and we have someone here who's been in Murundaka housing for the past 10 years. I believe there's been a lot of changes in the community. Could you share something that, in particular that you think uh, a lot of us would be really good to, for us to hear? Mm, um,
6: well... I think the reason why people move on is sometimes um, apart from, you know, just life changes because we have people who are in their 20s to people who are in their 70s living in Murundaka and people's lives change. We've had people move on because they became too big, the family became too big to stay in the place. It would have been great if they'd been designed so we could open up a connecting door to connect the two apartments because they're stack-built, so one-bedrooms, two-bedrooms, three-bedrooms. You could make, you know, a four- or five-bedroom by opening a few doors. That would have been a really good thing to have to do so people didn't have to move on. Also, too, it's um, our model's quite difficult to get in, but it's easy to leave because it is a rental model, so there's less... Um, incentive for you to stay if you suddenly get that fantastic job offer or or whatever else may happen in your life it's a little bit easier to move on some people found that the act of being in community was very different from the re- what they thought it was to the reality because it's almost like having a, a giant extended family and there's going to be conflict and there's going to be as well as great times there are going to be sticky times so um, and some people felt that, that that's not their thing. Other people got fantastic chances to go off and do fantastic things in other places, so that's why they moved on. Um, what can I say? The originals have stayed there. I mean, why? Well, I, I can't speak for them, but I really believe that it's given me a lot more than it's um, the outp- the out- input that I've put in, I've got a lot more out. And, and until that balance changes, I'm, I'll, I'll stay there for as long as possible. But, you know, it does have challenges. I'm not denying that. It is difficult because we are we are trying to focus on the collective rather than the, the individual. And in our society, it's the reverse. So we're trying to foster that a lot more. And sometimes that does... Um, take a bit of sacrifice in what you choose to do outside of being in this communal space.
2: Thanks for that, um, Lisa, because it reminds me of one of, in our conversation, Caroline, that you mentioned about how community actually creates the ongoing value of the housing. I mean, people want to buy in into the building not because of the design, but because of the community that they create, and I assume for... Uh, Murundaka being one of those uh, housing models that have this community for a long time already, a lot of people really wants to buy into that community. So now, um, I think I'd like Akilia has a question. So while we
1: are on the topic of community, Kate, you were mentioning that you had two kids when you were in Nightingale 1, and you also mentioned how your neighbor opened up one of her houses so your mom could stay and help out. Could you talk about your experience with that as well?
4: Uh, yeah, sure. I had a newborn right before the COVID lockdown last year. So I've got two kids under four. <laughs> I had to think about that. Um, and newborn days can be pretty hard. Um, there's an amazing parent community between the Commons and Nightingale. I think there's 10 kids under five years old. So there's always parents around, always kids around to help. But COVID was a bit of a different feast um, And a couple of my neighbours noticed that I was just walking the streets with this baby. (laughs) And because my mum, who lives in Port Melbourne, couldn't come over to help because of COVID, they contacted another neighbour at Nightingale who was working in Broken Hill for an extended period of time, contacted her and asked her if my mum could come and stay in her apartment, um, which was totally fine. So my mum moved in the next day and had never even met this woman before, So stayed in her apartment for three months to help me out with those early newborn days, which was, yeah, it was amazing. That's really nice because um, from your experience, Lisa, a lot
2: of the people that are moving out for, are for the reasons of the, the housing that they're fi- living in no longer um, enable them to live comfortably because of their age or also because of their size. And we hear from... Um, Kate's experience in Nightingale, where a random neighbor—I mean, um, even if she's not directly in contact with her—allowed her to um, rent, uh, let her mom stay actually in that place, which is very, very interesting to hear. Because a lot of these housing models, um, they have a lot of these shared spaces, and I'm really curious if any one of you could share also your experience of whether this kind of housing or the housing you're in allows intergenerational living, like for with the three generations, like what um, Ang has experienced. Would you like to share, Carolyn?
0: Yeah, we've got um, two townhouses with three generations um, living in them. So, um, and we've got a number of um, families that have bought uh, two or three apartments where a brother and, like, fat parents and whatever. So we've got quite a few families that live... Um, independently in the building but also in the same properties Um, it's really lovely to it's not Australian culture to actually live um, in multi generations and I think we can um, definitely embrace thinking more holistically about the way we live and having multi generations living together in the same dwellings
2: yeah, I agree because I remember when um, Eng, Akila and I were having conversations and Eng was sharing her experience of how she would wish some um, a bedroom would be next to a kitchen and a bathroom on the ground floor because this would help um, people like her to be able to access easily or when, um, from do you mind if I share that when her um, daughter-in-law had a sprain accident we are wondering whether would have been good that she was able to just stay on the ground and doesn't have to force herself to go upstairs. So now, Ashley Eng, would you like to elaborate more on what you think would be good for like this kind of housing
3: model? Um, I think as you get older, uh, where your mobility might be decreasing, I think uh, uh, where the stairs are involved, I think it's a bit more difficult. Um, for me, in my future to look uh, to look for my future, I have asked my son that I probably should look into uh, apartments where I don't have uh, two flights of stairs to go. Um, the the the, house, the townhouses uh, at the moment we we've been living. Um, the the living area kitchen is on the first floor and the b- bedrooms are on the, f- uh, on the ground floor. So if uh, I'm not able to go up or uh, to climb the stairs, um, then I would have to, I will have a problem, I think. <laughs> so, um, and there's no space to put a lift in it. So, I think that if you are, as you get older, I think you need, your needs will be changed. Your, your demands would have to be changed. Um, and apartments will be, for me, would be more suitable. Yeah.
0: The, I just wanted to say, um, as well as reframing the idea of intergenerations living together, we need to rethink what family is. We live in a globally distanced world. I don't have, other than my son, none of my family live in Melbourne and more and more people are single. Two million people live alone in Australia and so we need to rethink about how we can support each other, live independently but codependently and interdependently at the same time. So last um, this week, as an example, one of the la- single ladies, even one of the women who lives on her own, Actually, um, was in hospital this week. She had an operation and she was able to count on four other women to pick her up, take her to the hospital, um, get her home. Everyone's been feeding, um, dropping off soup every day. That is family. We've got to reframe what the notion of family is um, in this globally kind of digitally disconnected world. So... Um, you know the idea of of living in a community like we're fortunate enough to live in is really important, and it is a lot of women. Um, hence, five women here, <laughs> and all the pictures have got women. So you know, for security reasons as well. You know, we've we've that's a really important part as well. Security.
2: Thanks for that. Because um, oh. the idea, like what you said before. Uh, when you move into Assemble, you found a family from the community that you're living in. And I think it's a really nice um, thought for everyone that once someone comes into this housing model, it's not just pitching in to be in this housing model, but rather investing also to the people that you're going to be living with for a long run. Um,
5: Chen, you would want to add on that? yeah I wanted to talk about diversity in community, and one of the ways that Nightingale um, encourages that is by having a ballot system when a when a um, when a property is opened up for balloting the first well I suppose it depends on how many units there are but the first four ballots in our building were allocated to people who were either um, a key service worker uh, had disability or were Aboriginal so it's trying to encourage um, Diversity in the building. So we have um, a few of uh, a few people that fitted um, that first ballot system, um, and we also have um, a woman sorry, a couple who bought one of the properties bought a second one and handed it over to social housing. So we have um, an elderly um, disabled woman um, from Afghanistan who doesn't speak English. So, um, But we all, like, everyone knows everyone in our building because we were getting together before we moved in for about 18 months and having dinners and catching up and getting to know each other. Um yeah, so we have a very close community and we all communicate on Slack. Have you got a salary? Um, have you got a can of. I've, I've run out of milk and I'm in the middle of a recipe. Um, and you can just, you know, get anything you need, whether it be hospital pickups or. <laughs> yeah, everything.
6: So I was just going to feed into that. Um, how does the movement. Of people in and out work and also we do have the average age in our co-op is probably, you know, going northwards of 50 um, even though we do have young people moving in as well and we've got a lot of young kids and I'll say a couple of things about that. When the children move in they form an instant tribe and they just get it and love it. It's very good for their... Um, social needs and also too because they have people from all different walks of life, ages and stages that they can get to know as well in a safe environment. I um, originally moved into a one-bedder on the first floor, after a little while I gained a partner, we had a chance to move down to the ground floor which suits us as we're getting older. The lifts only go to the first floor and um, we've got a, a second floor as well, which makes it difficult because if you're an older person or have a disability, you actually can't access the top-level apartments. Um, so all of those things have to be factored in when you're thinking about how you're um, servicing the people who live there or how they're going to live there. Um, I think, to the informal nature of people have really formed... Um, little groups within the groups of supporting each other, whether it be for childcare or looking after someone who's become unwell or needs a little bit of extra help um, depending on what's going on in their life. So that's worked really well informally. We also have three guest rooms, so family members, because our apartments are small, can come and stay. And we have people staying there for quite a while sometimes. We can... Each allocate, we allocate a special amount of um, free time, and we also um, allow people to have people stay longer depending on circumstances. So it's been a really fluid um, relationship with using those extra spaces
1: and in relationship with each other. So it's been good. Thank you, Lisa. It's so nice to hear you talk about flexibility, zoning, and diversity all in the same place. Um, A bit of background about myself. So I'm from India, and I grew up in an apartment with 12 people, so all three generations in a two-bedroom apartment. And ever since I came here, it's been a constant question for me as to what multiculturalism is and how you encourage more diversity in housing types and apartments. And Kate, you were mentioning in Nightingale that there's a different housing type that gives people privacy, but at the same time encourages... Um, generations to live together. Could you expand on that? Uh, You were talking about the Airbnb apartment. Um, uh,
4: Yes, so uh, not in Nightingale one, but in future Nightingale projects, they're setting up a guest house similar to you um, that is free for residents to rent to family or friends that come and stay for an extended period of time. Uh. And I was going to say um, 20%, I think, of Nightingale homes moving forward are um, through housing, uh, sorry, community housing providers, um, the same as Nightingale too. And
6: I'll say one more thing too. We haven't done it because of COVID, but we've also had the HelpX scheme, which is a, a way that people from um, mainly overseas, but some homegrown people can come and stay in the community with us and for the exchange of a couple of hours' work a a day, get to to stay in one of our guest rooms. So we've hosted quite a few people over the years and formed some long-lasting relationships that way too.
2: Thanks for that, um, Kate and Lisa. So now we're just jumping into our next question and I think a lot of people are really curious about how is community-based living. And a lot of the concerns is about um, how, what are the general issues associated with community living. Of course, it's not always the rosy and very nice things about um, cooperation. So how do you usually deal with this within your group? And how do you resolve
0: conflicts within or even outside your community? Um. I want to dispel the myth that it's any different from living in any neighbourhood um, because um, no matter where you live, I bet you can all think of grumpy, noisy, painful neighbours um, in any street. So it happens everywhere. And um, particularly noisy apartments and and even in um, large-scale housing estates You know, we build the largest houses in the world in Australia and the noise that carries between some houses is more than you would get in our development where I live. So, um, our development has been so well designed that I don't hear my neighbours above me. We have double glazing. Um, So, noise is never a problem. Um, we haven't actually had any major conflict in our development that I'm aware of. Maybe it has happened, but I haven't been involved in any conflict. So, um, I just don't think it's any different from any neighbourhood. If you're in a cooperative where you've got co-ownership or whatever, it's probably different. Our development is not like that. So, we all independently own our apartments. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, um... Yeah, it's pretty much no different than normal living. <laughs> yeah. And Jen, you've mentioned before in our conversation,
2: um, you face some issues with the surrounding community of Nightingale too. Could you briefly share with us what, what, what happened and how is your community
5: dealing with it at the moment? Um, yeah, we have a few. Yeah. Um, so I guess we suffer a little bit from being so public um, and there's a lot of people in the community talking about us and how many cars we still have. Uh, I don't have one. Um, and some people watch us very closely and if you look at Google Maps, you'll see what they say. Um, they give us little reviews saying um, they really missed the trees that were on our site because uh, their house didn't drop any trees down. Um, so... Sorry, sarcasm's not good. Um, And we have one man who complained to council about us because we have um, on our balconies some um, netting on the balcony, which was a prescription from VicTrack um, and a condition of our planning permit because we're next to the station. And some of the owners took it down because they didn't want to... They felt like they were living in a cage... Uh, he complained to council, and, and council gave us an order to put it back up. Um, so I can I can see that this is going to go on for a while. And um, for me, it's um, it's about having a good relationship with the community. We have um, you've got coffee downstairs. We've got ice cream, and it's not good for your hips, let me tell you. Um, but we also have. Um, people in the community come and sit which is a lovely thing about our building is that it was designed to engage the community so we have a bench out the front and people come and sit there and eat their ice creams and leave some rubbish but um, Milo who's six and I decided to do some posters and welcome people to come and sit and just by putting up those posters say please rest here and and enjoy now there's no rubbish because they realised that there were people in there and we're not a faceless community. Um, so we're just... I guess what we're doing now is trying to build um, connections with council. Um, and I had the Sustainable Transport com- Officer come over today. And, you know, we're just we're just working with... We've got members, and this is not related, but we also have members on the Fairfield Stationiers um, Group, which does the garden around the station and stuff. So, you know, I mean we're obviously open to engaging with the community but at the moment it just feels like there's a bit of perception out there about who we are and 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 we've let them down because we weren't mm. the archetypal people that they thought were getting mm. a night and housing
2: yeah i remember um the time that you mentioned that um, they expect you to be sustainable angels overnight and i guess that's Uh, Just busting the meat about people who are also living in this model, it's a learning, uh, it's a work in progress to live sustainably, and it's not just something that happens once you move in into this housing model, but it's something that also, um, for us, for some of the designers and architects here could learn that um, how we design our buildings could also be a way to encourage sustainable living and not just an instant solution for it. And um, now I'd like to hear from Lisa, who's, uh, I assume you've, you have, um, in your community, have set better ways of settling conflicts and have managed it already over the years. Could you tell us more about it and how is it so far at the moment?
6: Sure. I did mention before that we've got a group looking at um, non-violent communication. A few of us are doing a locally-sponsored locally sponsored Um, workshop series at the moment on advanced facilitation skills through a transition group. That will be really valuable because as we skill up, members leave, and then we have to skill up again. So we always want our meetings and things to be better and to be safe so that, you know, when we do have conflict, we can talk about it and we're not too scared to sort of um, safely hold those conversations because everything is a negotiation Life is a negotiation. So we want to make sure we've got the right skills and a a confidence to have those conversations. And if it's an interpersonal conflict, we've got a process. If it's a a conflict between two parties, we've got a process. If it's a conflict that the whole community feels is an issue, we'll workshop it and figure out a solution. We'll do policies. We'll work on... um, uh, creating change within buildings for example we put in some solar power panels the next stage is we'll put in some batteries so we're always working on making us more livable as well not just the physical space but the social space um, we're having a current conversation about how our group works because we've got a series of working groups that get together and talk about the various roles and activities that happen in various spaces and how we manage those and how we can do it better and we're we're more equitable in sharing the load, that's an ongoing conversation as well. As to outside influences, um, I'm the go-to person for the council at the moment, so when we do have neighbours that feel a bit threatened by us, the council usually rings me and I... You know, spend a bit of time talking to people or talking through the issues. I would love to have better relationships with our most immediate neighbours, but um, we've got to find a way of engaging them so they feel safe to come and talk to us. We have in the past, but just like us, people change over and there's new people come in and they don't really understand who we are or how to approach us. So I kind of get that. But we've got a very active local group. We've got a a pocket park behind us where we have lots of community-led events that um, come from conversations we've had with our neighbours. So it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a constant changing, evolving space, that whole negotiation.
2: Yeah, thing. and you mentioned also that you do public programs for people to be aware of the housing model that you're in. And in some way, this makes it more accessible so for your neighbors to get to know who are we living next door with. So now I'll jump into my next question, which is how was your living experience during lockdown? And I'll start with Eng, who lives in a smaller footprint model. And I'm curious of how has this shaped your experience
3: the past year? Uh, Well, from the lockdown, um, I realised that um, compared to my to the first pro, uh, house, uh, Saint George's Road project, there was only one kitchen living space, and uh, three generations living in one space would be very challenging uh, in a lockdown situation. But in the current um, Place we have in Clark Street, we have three separate um, living spaces. Um, and that was uh, much better. We could um, easier which could face the challenges a lot more easier, even though there are many uh, there are challenges, uh, especially when everybody ha- has their work. Homeschooling, uh, work-wise, and for me, even though I don't have a work, but I do have actually Zoom activities. Um, so it was a bit challenging, but for space-wise, it was easier where we have more living space. Yeah, when there are three living space compared to the first one, which has one living space. Yeah,
2: I wonder if the other panelists are. Uh, have a similar experience or found it very challenging to live in the housing model you're
0: in during the past lockdown? Um, I don't think I would have survived lockdown without living where I did. Um, It was just the incidental connections because at least you could still go and get a coffee and say hi to people. So there was the sidewalk conversations. Um, I'd organise a walk with a different person every day so you know we did have one hour to get out so
2: was this uh community initiated or is you
0: initiated? oh no I just did it myself but um we also started um a weekly zoom um catch up between six and seven every single week I'd just log on to zoom and whoever was there was there um so sometimes we'd have half a dozen people and other times we'd have 20 people and sometimes we'd get guest speakers and that, that was good because it fa- formed a foundation of um, community from which we developed a few of the projects and, and things that we're working on. So, yeah, it was... And fortunately, we're very close to the Yarra River so we could get out in nature, which was really um, important... So yeah, we, it, it was it was wonderful to have the community during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Kate, you would speak the same um, experience
2: with how you enjoyed having the being in lockdown with the parent community and the, all the um, how you've turned your garages and rooftop into community spaces. So you would like to share about that?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, during lockdown, when the playgrounds were closed and the childcare centres. Um were closed. It was pretty tough. Um, but we had the rooftop space, we turned a couple of the vegetable plots into, you know, digger spaces for the kids to use trucks and stuff like that. And we also turned our garage bike parking area into the place to ride a bike, which was sort of depressing but kinda cool at the same time. Um, we put on little discos for the kids down there and yeah, let them ride and scoot around. Because we're only allowed outside for an hour a day.
2: <laughs> it's really nice to hear. Um, it's actually in one of the photos and the slides where you see um, some kids on a box in a garage, and I think it's your kids' gate. Kid? Yeah. And I wonder, Chad, um, would you like to share of your experience living in um, Nightingale too? Was it any if
5: any different because of the kind of people um, living with? I think, like Assemble, um, I wouldn't have we were in the best place to be for lockdown um it was really nice when you know everyone remembers that first lockdown quite fondly um when we baked and shared stuff and everyone was running around going here have some bread you know here have some muffins um but then you know the second one was shite and but I'm a single mum and upstairs um is another single mum and we were a bubble we just You know, I'm sorry, shh, don't tell anyone. We were a bubble way before they decided there were bubbles. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, that worked for us. So, yeah, um, but we were doing that already. So it was like, well, we're already family, so we'll just keep doing that. We share meals and, um, you know, help each other out all the time. Yeah. Yeah, we had the bubble thing going way before it became a thing too.
2: Um, It was natural. We've
6: got um, six single people, or more actually, at the time.
2: So yeah, it
6: worked.
2: And um, Lisa, because your experience in lockdown is different because you you live in a cooperative housing model and you follow the guidelines under um, the government. So how did you manage in your like? How did your community manage the use of a lot of your shared spaces?
6: Well, they were locked, basically. So people would occasionally go in there and do solo activities and we just let that happen. Um, One of the good things we did do is we had a... In the beginning of the first lockdown, we had a giant cook-up. So when people were feeling a bit stressed, we had a whole series of frozen meals that people could um, help themselves to if they were feeling a bit you know, over their own cooking, which was lovely to be able to share. We did a lot of stuff on Zoom, but I found Zoom a bit... Um, what, what's the word? A bit... Uh, yeah, just... Ugh, not Zoom again. So a lot of um, incidental things happened where people would just come out to the landings because we've got quite wide landings and have incidental um, chat parties for half an hour and then disappear back into our houses... Um, The kids obviously were allowed... Well, we just said, look, they can have the run of the garden. People could go into the garden and be spaced out enough because it's a big enough space. But we did find that people were struggling, so it was good that the bubble thing happened because I think the mental health thing didn't really kick in um, the thought about it until way into the second lockdown um, and... People were starting to say in, in the wider community, oh, what about people's mental health? Well, yeah, um, it's not a, a no-brainer. But we had a- a- areas that had to stay open, so we had made sure we had all the signage and the sanitizer and the cleaning schedule because we have a shared laundry um, and, and a few other shared areas like the bike shed. And, um, you know, we were pretty vigilant, I think, more vigilant than you would be in a normal kind of complex, because we're also our own landlords. Yeah.
2: And They're I'm j- just curious, because this lockdown, whether it really brought the community even stronger. Um, I wonder if any one of you could attest to this? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I just like the yes. And um, now, because we're almost out of time, um, we're just going to wrap up, and I would like to ask each panellist, of. Uh, what you would like actually the general public and the architects and developers who are probably in the audience as well of this model would like to hear because we always hear about um, the technical aspects of it, but rather we, we want to hear now what you thought would make, would make the model better or what is actually already great in this model that they could push through. So, Carolyn, let's start with you. Um,
0: I, I don't really know much about the housing industry, um, but from what I read and hear that we have a largely unregulated housing industry in Australia. And so we need to, I think, to developers and people responsible for building housing that we really have to readdress um, housing in Australia. Firstly, to deal with housing insecurity because it's very real for a lot of people. And um, we have to stop building big houses and start living and thinking small and redesign the way we live. And it's up to citizens to demand to actually want to buy those kinds of places so that builders and developers won't build it. Um, and, yeah, get urban, get, get small and, and really think about community. So it requires a citizen-led approach but also a more regulated approach um, from, from an industry that I don't really know much about. The other thing is that there's massive gender inequity in the housing industry. You know, 82% of our people in the housing industry are men and um, the women that exist in the industry are still paid 17% less than men. So we need to have a financial discussion and in my experience, it's the men that build the buildings and it's the women that build the community. And so the buildings are where the, financial, where the money is, but the community building, it's unpaid work. And so we need to have a really big conversation about how we build communities in our housing, a different conversation.
2: I've
0: been thinking a bit about this question, two words, affordable and accessible,
6: but more than that, it's about... I mean, I've I've been thinking about while I could have stayed in share housing forever, like in the private rental market, but that wasn't going to service what I wanted, how I wanted to live, and I didn't want to have to make a choice between affording somewhere that was not where I wanted to live and being made to feel like a second-class citizen because I had to choose the the place over the over the amenity, if that makes sense. So having come from a lifetime of rental where some of the the accommodation has been pretty shitty, basically, to actually live in something that I'm proud to live in and I'm really happy and privileged and all the rest of it, why should I have to feel that way? You know, I think it should be affordable and accessible for all. And why we don't do more of this, I just don't really understand. We should be doing it a lot more.
2: And
5: um, how about you, Jen? Um, I think the one thing that I would say is heat recovery ventilation. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I've got mould and it's really yuck Um, and the ventilation is an issue. So, please... um, Check out the European standards and maybe work towards them instead of what we have in Australia because the building code is not going to change anytime soon. I expect it will change eventually, but our standards need to lift in terms of ventilation. So if any architects out there, please don't design small buildings that are, that are um, airtight without sorting out the ventilation issue. Um, and I just wanted to say, a couple of slides ago there were... Four blokes and lots of wine bottles there. Um, They were um, watching the diggers on the railway line.
4: (laughs) I agree with what everybody said, but I just thought it never makes sense to me that developments aren't made with some really simple design. Um, strategies like my apartment doesn't need air conditioning and runs on, another, you know, hydronic heating, which costs nothing to run. It's on an embedded internet network and green power network and makes my cost of living much smaller. We've got rainwater, we've got solar. I don't understand why all buildings aren't built that way.
3: Seems easy. <laughs> well... Um, for me, the importance is uh is close to public transport and um yeah, so that we don't have to drive. I hardly use my car now because the locations that the units are are so close to public transport and um and the housing has to be uh affordable for lots for people and that's what uh, I have been involved has been affordable for me um, and accessible to community activities for all the residents, um, whether it's from council activities or whatever that is being available by the, in, the, in the local area.
2: Thank you, Ang. So now we'll open up this stage for the audience to ask questions. For any one of you, ask burning questions for the panelists, hear from the residents, their thoughts, like
1: um, how Jen shared her problem with uh, mold. Um, This is now your chance to ask. Akila? I'm sure a lot of you have some really amazing questions that you're just pining to ask, so ask away. Does anybody have a question? Okay, so while we're waiting for questions, I'd like to ask the speakers a question. Um, How did you convince, how are you spreading the word about these housing models to your friends that you're not necessarily compromising on space and quality of life by living in smaller footprints? How um, are you convincing them that you still get a lot of privacy and it's not just about privacy?
6: That's a very <clears throat> interesting question. When I first moved in, a lot of my friends referred to it as the hippie commune until they actually came and saw where we lived, where I was living, and went, oh, wow, it's nothing like I thought it would be like. we just got a normal apartment, but with all this other fantastic shared space, which was, you know, an easy sell, so they stopped referring to it as the hippie commune. But it was a nice place to be and live.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't um, think it's up to me to convince other people that my lifestyle is any better than theirs, you know. Like, I think you just have to live it and let people experience it and invite people in to participate in it and... Um, if it's beautifully designed, it can be the most beautiful nesting space. You know, um, big houses have very a lot of unoccupied space. And, um, and so I just like to give people an experience of it. Thank
1: you. Does anybody else have anything to offer?
4: I was just going to say there's a huge mixture of introverted people like myself and extroverted people and at go 1, and there's, like, no pressure to be involved in anything that you don't want to be. You know, there's... But you're here. <coughs> Pardon?
3: But you're here.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm here. Under duress. No, it's okay. Um, you know, we have working bees every uh, month and... The community gets together to do that together, or there's just a list, and you can go and do it in your own time during the week, or
1: not at all if you don't want to. <laughs> um, does anybody have any questions?
7: Do you do you miss the Australian Dream? Is there anything? I'm
0: living this it. is the Australian I'm Dream. I'm living
8: it. Yeah, all right. The but Australian what's dream is, has is, is, is there? Got it but is there anything that is a compromise that you miss from having a quarter-acre lifestyle? Uh,
0: No. I've lived in 26 homes and nine towns in my life, and this is the smallest and happiest place I've ever lived in. Um, And I've owned big houses, and it's the first time I've actually lived in an apartment or owned an apartment. So, um, yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised, so I don't miss the Australian dream.
5: (laughs) I'm a bit jealous of Nightingale Anstey because they're going to have a spa on the roof and I really want a bath. For me, it's um, lack of uh, storage
6: space for the incidentals. Um, We do a lot of shared storage storage space but we have no um, uh, um, accessible storage space for... Things like camping stuff and you know the incidentals that you use when you, when you're not, um, you, you don't want to access every day. So that would be the only thing I could say physically. But any of the other stuff, no. And I grew up traveling around from house to house, and also as an adult from house to house as a renter. And I yeah, in bigger places, they used to just spend more time cleaning them and
0: maintaining them. Why you know? You just don't need it. There's nothing like being able to clean your house in two hours flat from top to bottom.
8: Hello, I've got the mic over here now. Um, I just wanted to say something to, specifically to what, Lisa? Is it Lisa? Um, what you were talking about in regards to feeling like a second-class citizen as a renter, and I think this is a massive issue in Australia, Um, the obsession with home ownership and with real estate as like, you know, having chips in a casino or something in terms of your own self-worth. And I just think it's really important that issue is addressed. Um, And I can remember growing up in the country and that just wasn't an issue, you know, but I think that was obviously largely due to the fact that prices were much cheaper but I just wanted the panel to maybe discuss that. Is there a reason for that, that people... I mean, the classic thing when you talk to people is they say, you go to their house and they go, oh, you know, I'm just renting. Like, it's almost in the culture now to say that as opposed to really who gives a fuck, you know? So um, I just want firstly to say a shout-out to you for addressing that issue and maybe if you guys could talk about it a bit as well. If you want.
5: I'm a homeowner or a mortgage owner um, and I rented for a while and I got sick to death of being kicked out of rentals. Um, That just drove me insane. So I I know what you're talking about. But I don't think I would ever have got anywhere near home ownership if it wasn't for something like this. Um, So I'm just grateful for that opportunity because... being a single mother with a young child is it's important to me.
4: I was gonna
0: I was just gonna say like the insecurity is because our rental model is you you rent for six months, a year and then you have to go and find somewhere else and it's expensive to keep moving and other countries have, you know, ninety nine year rentals and, and long term rentals and home ownership doesn't seem from my perspective doesn't seem to be the issue that Australia has created a churn and burn um, kind of rental model, which which creates incredible housing insecurity and a stigma attached to it. So I hear what you say. Um, it's 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 something that needs to be addressed. We all, um, you know, having a home is bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's like having home security is a it's a human right.
5: I think, though, that um, what we need is the institutions that can support home security in the rental market. I think that's what you're saying. And that's what I would have loved. Um, The other thing about the rental market for me was that it just wasn't sustainable, as in the properties that I could access on the rental market weren't sustainable. I was living in places that weren't, you know, heating properly or, you know, not designed well. Um, So, yeah, for me... The choice to have a sustainable house was one that I had to purchase. And
4: I was just going to say my mortgage at Nightingale One is actually cheaper than the rent I was paying at the Commons, which I don't know how that happens, but it's not right.
6: <laughs> um, and I'd I just like to say that on that, that um, having decided, well, I didn't really have a choice because I've never had enough equity to be a homeowner... Um, or even get in the market for various reasons t- to feel that I can be a long term renter because I and I but I've been able to within the I've been able to suit my changing needs within the complex that I'm in so that has been really important as well so I haven't lost out by having to move because the space no longer fits my needs I've been able to do that and still stay in the community, which is really important as well on me. <clears throat> so I think also thinking about um, having different stages of the development or, or, or the class of building that actually suits people as they move through life so they don't have to move on works as well. I think that's really important. Thank you Lisa..
1: Um- we also have another question at the back here.
7: Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm interested to hear a bit more about the mould issue and whether anyone else in your um, community has had that issue, and whether you're getting whether anyone's offering any help to about that.
5: Um, yeah, we're, there's a few things going on. Um, RMIT has been doing an air quality monitoring study in our property. Um, and monitoring CO2 and humidity and temperature. Um, And the results are showing that if um, two people sleep in a bedroom with the door shut overnight, it can get up to 5,000 parts per million CO2 and some of you will know that outdoor air is 450 parts per million. So that's dangerous to health and certainly does stuff to your brain when you wake up, you're really, really foggy. Um, so there is a need for ventilation. Yes, there are other apartments that have mould. For some reason, not as bad as my apartment, but, um, so I'll, I've been doing a hell of a lot of research because it's what I do, um, and I've, discuss, I've sort of come up with a very long list of manual fixes, um, that I'm testing out and really the big, um, assessment will be overwinter, um, and but there are five apartments who are going down the track of getting heat recovery ventilation put in costing about ten grand um, so yeah, we're sort of fixing the problem from the outside but interestingly, and this is I suppose indicative of what it's like to live in a community everyone's reason for doing it is different. Some people are doing it because they don't want to have to um, be limited when it's really hot in summer and can't open up their windows to get the fresh air Um, others are doing it because of the mould others are doing it because of the CO2 so yeah there's really a variety of um, responses to the problem
1: Does anybody else have any questions?
7: Uh, Thank you very much thank you for being here and sharing your stories that's you know really I appreciate hearing from you and you kind of already feel part of, you know, your community per se. Uh, I guess the topic of my question is more about appropriation. Uh, so you basically move in these buildings, and I wouldn't expect that you were part of the design process. So I'm really wondering, you know, at what point this was your home? You know, what happened, what event really made it your home, and what did you make to actually, um, you know, make it your own? If there were uh, any change that you make to the building or anything that you know you you really wanted to do for it to feel more like the place where you wanted to spend you know hopefully uh, many years forward
5: was the question um what changes we would make structurally or design
7: wise uh, mostly you know like it's just that buildings are bare structures and, you know, you move in and you make it really your own and, you know, obviously this idea of community which is there, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, what, sorry, uh, what would you do to actually, yeah.
2: Yeah, I believe um, and you could share a bit about how you were able to share your design ideas when you were building the first property collective because I think the question revolves around how and what part of the housing of the project were you able to start Appropriate it and uh, provide your design inputs and make it feel like your
3: home from the beginning. So, and I couldn't get his question, but I'll tell you. Um, In in the building group in property collectives, um, once the uh, group comes in together, you have an input in every stage from beginning to the end. Um the design uh, the appliances what so, or any problems that um, any issues that matters to you a lot, you would uh, you can have an input to it, and all the issues would be dealt with in the meetings there are regular meetings from the start to the end, and uh, for example to me um, important things is ventilation and I wanted that um, especially when there's a cool change, I want the air to come cool the room so I wanted some um, what do you call it? the top part uh, uh, louvers, yes right, louvers Uh, and that was done and to me, also uh, privacy between each unit. Uh, so I wanted the walls to be pop- uh, properly insulated so that I don't hear my neighbour when the toilet is flushed. Uh, or from one floor to another, I don't hear any footsteps of the top floor. And so you have the input on uh, what your, you would like to have. And the group will discuss it. So and yeah, and if there's any design that you don't want, you can have had it changed or with a group discussion. So right?
1: Thank you, Wing. Do we have another question from the audience? We are taking one more question.
4: Thank you. Uh, Thanks very much for all of your insights into your communities. It's very exciting when you're thinking about where you want to put yourself. Um, Now, I'm just wondering if you might be able to... If there is such a thing in each of your communities that kind of speaks to a collective culture in your setting and invites people to participate in that... um, Kind of like that... The collective ownership thing is an interesting one because it's financial and it's also... Um, emotional I suppose and, and I'd be really interested to hear if there's any there's policies and procedures and there's codes of conduct and all that sort of stuff I'd like to know what you guys have that facilitates that kind of positive com- community
0: engagement um, if you're able to go through that please um, Well we have uh, the Owners Corporation uh, committee which manages kind of the building management and financial issues of running development like ours. And then we also have um, unofficial subcommittee who looks after social things, community aspects and so on and lots of subgroups. So I think the culture is created through lots of individual groups who have shared interests and then it's kind of like you can't describe culture, you know, it's just something that Bubbles up and uh, yeah, so subgroups working on various projects and initiatives and ideas together are kind of forming the culture. So um, we don't have values and a vision and a mission and a purpose statement or any of that stuff. Um, and one, you know, if I would, if I could do anything, I think it'd be cool to have like a manifesto or something like that that we could, we could kind of. Um, point to when conflict arises or if we want to deal with um, decisions, make decisions about things. So, uh, yeah, so we don't have any kind of – we're not a corporation who try to create the culture that everyone wants to be a part of and that's the difference between community and business, I guess, is that you can't set goals, objectives and, you know, missions and visions and all of those things because – People don't really want to opt into that stuff. So I've got a bit bit of a different
6: take on that, because we are both landlord and tenant. I'm um, not using those words anymore, but I'll continue with them. Plus we're a community. Plus we do our own maintenance and all that entails. Um, plus project work. There's different levels of um, formality and informality. So if you're talking about what's the glue, the easiest way to get people together at talking and, and, and um, intermingling is to have a common meal. So we've got a purpose-built space for that. Uh, so it's getting a group of people together, cooking together, inviting the rest of the community who all sit down and talk while we're eating over um, a shared meal so that's one really surefire way, but it's also about having expectations that people will come to a work garden working bee if they're available, also to do um, projects that they might have an interest in or put their hand up to do, learn a new skill so they can take on some of the finance work or the rental arrears or whatever it might be. So... Um, and we do have a mission statement and a vision statement, and all those things as well. But we're finding too that even though we have all of that, because the people keep changing, we keep having to reevaluate is that still true? Have we moved on? Do we need to change this? So um, I think that's the only thing I'm certain of is change. <laughs> Basically, it's a moving feast, and yeah.
1: Thank you, Lisa. Hello, Miss
5: Good Karma. Um, this is Jen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we met. Um, but um, what I wanted to talk about was the idea that we were sharing stuff, um, which we had early on, and we wrote this really big long list of everything that we were happy to share with everyone else so that everyone knew what we had. But actually, it hasn't really gone anywhere. More often than not, on our Slack channel, where we've got hashtag sharing... You just go, has anyone got a tent I can borrow for the weekend? Has anyone got um, a um, pizza cutter or, you know, whatever whatever you need? You just put it out there and it comes back. I need a lemon. I need, you know, whatever. Um, so we share lots of stuff. We're always sharing, including houses. Um, yeah, if somebody goes away, oh, like, I'm going away for Easter. Does anyone want a bed? Can you feed my fish? It's all about pets yeah pets and kids <laughs> yeah and kids
4: um, i was just gonna say the same thing it just happens really organically and a bit like eng with nightingale we were all brought in as resident groups every i don't know what it was six weeks or every couple of months um to have a meeting together so by the time we moved in and the building was constructed we already knew everybody and had each other's phone numbers and knew who we were living next door to and across from, and yeah sort of already mates at day
1: one so that brings up to the end of the event so if there's anything we've learned from this panel discussion from a wonderful set of speakers and a moderator is that community is just not a bunch of people on a render it takes actual work and community building to get to this stage and it's not just a group of like-minded people and it is very much a heterogeneous sort of group and um, so it's now time to launch the exhibition which is happening over on the other side so thank you again everyone thank you for turning up it's a great turnout and um, have a good night and if you have any other questions that you want to ask the speakers feel free to network with them after the event too so thank you so much
0: you're listening to an m pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.